This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's holy, infallible, and good word comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So good morning, First Prize. I'm just so thrilled to be with you this morning and having the opportunity to continue in our series in Luke as we look at the life of Christ. Before we dive in, let's take a moment and just ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word, shall we? Father, we come, and we come humbly, recognizing that if you weren't here, we would be in trouble. And Lord, that's not just true in the sense of our salvation in general, but it's true even, Lord, for this very moment, that as we gather around your word, without you, there is no hope, no hope of understanding, no hope of growing, no hope of changing. And so, Lord, we are thankful for the power you provide through your word, through your spirit, to guide us and direct us, to empower us to obey. And, Lord, that's our prayer, is that we would truly be empowered this morning, empowered to truly know where we fail so we can repent properly, Empowered to truly have hearts that love you and pursue you and desperately want to seek you. 
empower to truly begin to apply your word to our daily lives. So God, we ask you to do even the things we don't know how to ask for, and we trust that you will because you're a good and gracious God. We're blown away by the reality that we can pray and know that we're heard because on our own, we're not good enough, but because of Jesus, we're accepted and we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And as a child before his father, ask and know that you will always give us what is good and perfect. So Lord, thank you for the times that we can gather together as the church family around your word and in prayer in looking to you to minister to each and every person and each and every need. Lord, we're mindful there are many in our congregation who are struggling. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to the emotional, the physical, and yes, Lord, the spiritual needs of each member, of each visitor, of each attender. God, minister to them, strengthen them in and through your word, Lord. Bring change that only you can bring. God, I pray that you would guard my mouth, that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say. But God, I pray that I would be faithful to your word in its entirety. And again, Lord, we ask you, change us, transform us. Make us more in the image of our Savior, we pray. And God's people said, amen. I don't know about you, but growing up, there was a special TV show that I just seemed to always catch around lunchtime. I lived close to the elementary school I attended, and I could come home for lunch, and usually my mom or my dad would have my sandwich ready, and I would get right there and get right in front of the TV, and that TV show was I Love Lucy. Anybody ever seen that show? I could not get enough of I Love Lucy. There was just something about that show. It starred Lucille Ball, and it was focused specifically on her comedy of errors. And let me describe what I mean by comedy of errors. Episode after episode was made amusing by her clumsy incompetence. You could just watch the show and know that somehow Lucy Lucy was going to somehow goof this whole thing up. Some way, and, and, and you just stood there and you watched and, and you would begin to giggle and laugh as you began to see the storyline begin to unfold. In fact, one of the most famous episodes was the first episode of the second season when Lucy and her best friend Ethel got jobs at the local chocolate factory. Now immediately you're laughing because you can visualize what's about to take place. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong for them. The episode portrays one of the most iconic scenes of all time as Lucy is there in a chef's hat and totally trying to control what's coming off of the conveyor belt, but it's coming too fast, and she can't control anything. She begins to stuff chocolate everywhere, in her mouth, down her clothes, doing everything she can to control this messed up situation. The truth is, Lucy's antics, episode after episode, made the show I Love Lucy one of the most beloved shows of all time. And the truth personally is, there's nothing more eye-catching than watching someone, maybe a coworker, maybe a family member, who is constantly learning through a comedy of errors. Mistake after mistake grabs and holds our attention, and we just see, and we'll stand there watching what will happen next. Friends, that's the picture that Luke gives us of the disciples, a comedy of errors. 
However, this comedy isn't so funny. Because as you read this story, it's heartbreaking to think that these men had walked with Jesus faithfully day in and day out. And you see their struggle. And the reason it becomes so real for us is we recognize our own struggle, our own, if you will, comedy of error. Day by day, moment by moment, how we fail the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's a commentator by the name of Dale Ralph Davis that I really, really enjoy. It's a name I'll put before you repeatedly as a congregation. He just has a way of writing that captures my heart. But in such his commentary on Luke, he says, this very moment, what we see is Jesus coming down from the majesty of the mountain where he was transfigured before his disciples into the misery of the valley of the folly of his disciples. Think about that for a moment. Jesus comes off the mountain where he is transfigured before the disciples and the glory of God is shown and he comes down the mountain to see the folly of his disciples. Does that already sound familiar? should. In the Old Testament, we had a picture of that through Moses. Moses went up the Mount Sinai to receive the law and saw the glory of God. And it shone upon his face the glory that he saw. And when he came down the mountain... He saw the folly and the sin of the people of God. See, what's important to understand is this is a repeated story in the Bible. It's also a repeated story in our lives. The folly of sin. The error we make. Friends, I draw your attention to our text, and we see three specific errors that the disciples make. First, there's the error of faithlessness. Second, there's the error of pride. And third, and finally, there's the error of mistaken enemy. Let's take a look. First, there's the error of the faithlessness. We see this in chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. I want to draw your attention to the scene. Jesus is coming off the Mount of Transfiguration and now is being confronted by a one who explains that Jesus' disciples are unable to help him. The one I'm referring to is a man who has a demon-possessed son. And the scripture goes so deep to say this is the man's only son. This is the one who will carry on the man's name. You could imagine the concern of the man. Maybe the wife, the mother of the child, is already dead. Maybe this is all he has left. We don't know. But the scripture is clear to tell us this is the man's only son. And then we're given details of what's taking place. Details of the son's desperate situation. Verse 39 says, the spirit seizes him and the spirit shrieks out. It cries out. You can imagine that scene. The chilling scene of one you love captured by a demon. A demon who screams out of them. Some of you recognize that. You've experienced that. You've seen the horrors of addiction in your own home. You've seen the pain and the suffering of watching a loved one suffer, and it breaks our hearts. This boy was seized, and he was owned by this demon, and this demon would shriek out. You can imagine the things the demon would have the boy say, probably cursing his father and maybe even possibly his dead mother. 
hurt and the harm that is being done to the family through this situation. This demon sends boy, the boy into convulsions so that the boy begins to foam at his mouth. The demon, it says, would shatter the man's son, almost like breaking him apart, throwing him from one place to another. The, the demon would rarely ever leave the boy calm and still. If that weren't enough, Mark gives us yet more detail because sometimes you have to go to the other synoptic gospels to see the full picture. And here in Mark 9, 21, he tells us that all of this has been going on since the boy was very small, possibly an infant or a toddler. Can you imagine the heartbreak, the pain of this parent? Some of you know that pain. Some of you, as I've already said, have experienced watching the demons of this world plague your family. You understand the pain that this man feels, and you cry with this man, Lord Jesus, help us. It got so bad, according to Mark's gospel in 922, it says the demon would throw the sun into fire and water, burning him, trying to drown him. What a picture. What a horrible picture. So as Jesus comes down the mountain, this man meets Jesus face to face, crying out to Jesus for help. Help my situation. How many of us have been found doing that? Jesus, help. I have. There are times that I, I can go nowhere else for help, right? All the time, because Jesus is the one who can only truly help. But how often we forget that until we get to a place where we've exhausted ourselves on everything and everyone else, and we're crying out for Jesus. Notice the words of the man. The man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Others couldn't help. We could read past that if we didn't understand in the very beginning of this book, or excuse me, this chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, we're told that the disciples were sent out with power. Listen to what it says in verse 1. And Jesus called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons. Notice it doesn't say some or most, but all demons and to cure disease. Friends, I draw your attention into this. I want to make clear what's taking place in this moment. I want you to understand the struggle. This man has brought his sick son for help, and he brought them to the doctors, the disciples, the spiritual healers, if you will, whom God has entrusted with power, and they're not able to do it. Notice the man's language I begged the disciples. He didn't just say, I asked. I wondered if they could help. I begged them, heal him. I've heard of what you and your men have done elsewhere. Heal him. These disciples had power both over spiritual and physical needs. So why couldn't they help? What was the issue? Friends, you need to use the synoptic gospels to piece all this together, but it's clear that the issue was faithlessness. It's 
faithlessness. In Mark's gospel, in 9 verse 23, it says, All things are possible for one who believes. That's the words of Jesus to this man. All things are possible for one who believes. But for some reason, people weren't trusting in God to do what he could. In fact, we're told in Mark 9, verse 29, that the disciples would later ask Jesus privately why they couldn't cast out the demon. To which Jesus responds, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, of course, is centered around faith. The focus is God. And yet I would draw your attention back to Luke's account where he tells us of the problem when he gives his correction to the standerbys who are doubting. You can almost imagine the crowd saying, Jesus ain't going to do nothing. This one's too far gone. His disciples couldn't do it. We saw what they did in some of the casting out of demons and the healings that they were able to do. There's no way anyone's going to be able to help this man. Notice what Jesus says in our account of Luke. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Jesus knew he was leaving. I've been preparing you for the work you've been given to do, church. That's what Jesus is saying. One would say for sure he's calling the crowds faithless and twisted. But I believe with most commentators that he is specifically also aiming at the disciples. Reminding them of their lack of faith. But surely the one person he's not scolding is the father of the son. For in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the father has faith. As imperfect as it is, the father says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, how many of us can identify with the words of the father there? I believe. But you got to help my own belief. It's astounding that in this text, it's the Father who recognizes his need of Jesus. But somehow the disciples maybe began to think that the power was in themselves. They tried all the tricks they knew, but for some reason, the same words weren't working. How often that's found in our faith. I go to church, I read the Bible, but for some reason my heart's not just warm. When's the last time you sought Christ? When's the last time in your prayer time you really sought the face of Jesus rather than just going through the motion? When's the last time that you listened into a sermon you really said, I'm here for me rather than worrying about everybody else getting fixed? You came hungry to meet Jesus yourself. See, that's the face of the Father. I believe, but help my unbelief. But the disciples, they appear faithless. And we're going to see later, one of the errors is that they begin to think too much of themselves. How often, church, is that us? Where we begin to think that we're better than others. That we're more correct 
that we're more pure, that we're more righteous, that we're more holy. And Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Friends, Jesus doesn't just walk away, Jesus acts. Jesus tells the man to bring his son to him, and Jesus heals the son by casting out the demon, according to Luke 9, 42. Friends, there's good news in this text, and that good news is that Jesus has the power and authority over all. His power and his authority is not limited by any human weakness or failing. And that's good news because I fail every day. You fail every day. And Jesus is not limited by our faith or our weakness. That is good news. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus succeeds. Jesus is victorious. Jesus conquers even when we don't. Church, the bottom line is faith is required. Faith is required for each and every one of us. It's expected as part of the Christian life. The question is, do you trust in Christ's victory? Not just to get you to heaven, but do you trust in Christ's victory now? In the events of your daily lives, are you trusting in the victory of Jesus? Do you truly believe Jesus is sovereign over all? Not just some. But every aspect, the spiritual as well as the physical, Jesus owns it all. I remind you, Jesus conquered death not just spiritually but also physically. And that's the good news of the gospel. If we truly have this faith, it should affect the way we live. We should have confidence in Jesus and not ourselves. Unfortunately, the faithful faithlessness of the disciples continues. In verses 43 through 45, we're told that Jesus has to redirect the disciples in the midst of the crowd's astonishment. As the crowd is there marveling that Jesus actually was able to cast out the demon. Oh my, who is this Jesus? As they're astounding and and stammering and shouting and chanting, Jesus has to speak. And he grabs his disciples and he says to them, let these words sink in your ears, he says. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What is Jesus doing? He's killing the parade. Why is Jesus bringing death up at a moment of victory? Because Jesus wanted them to understand that there is victory only through his death. See, the problem with the culture was they believed when the Messiah came, he was going to bring victory, but it wasn't going to be through death. It was going to be through power and might. They looked and they, and they saw the prophets and they only read those aspects that they liked, those things that, that talked about glory without suffering. And what ultimately happens here is Jesus has to redirect the disciples. He says, don't miss this. 
The Son of Man is about to die. But their faithlessness didn't allow them to understand. Their faithlessness concealed from them what might not have been the situation. Emptiness, dryness, barrenness. All because they were afraid to ask him about it. They didn't want to talk about it. Friends, how many of us have a wrong perspective of Jesus? That we expect that when you become a Christian, everything's supposed to be perfect. And when it doesn't work out that way, we're ready to abandon the faith. We're about, uh, quickly ready to, to discard Christianity as just being a, a fluke, a hoax, a joke. But missing the fact that if Jesus suffered, so should we expect suffering. Suffering is the reality of the Christian walk. But with that suffering comes life and victory and joy. A joy which we cannot fully understand apart from Jesus' suffering. See, friends, Jesus here again is reminding the disciples of his death just like he did earlier in chapter 9. Back in verse 22, he said, The suffering, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed, but on the third day he would rise again. But they were not listening. Verse 44 goes to this point that Jesus ties his victory into an apparent defeat. That Jesus says, I don't want you to miss this. The reason I have victory is because of who I am. And the reason you will have victory is because of what I'm about to do. Friends, that's the irony of the cross. Victory in apparent defeat. Jesus is destroying any kind of wrong idealism. He's attacking the Jewish notion that the Romans would be defeated by power and strength. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to defeat the Romans. I came to defeat a greater enemy, sin and death and the devil. Do you believe? See, that's the question for each of us, isn't it? Do I believe? Do I believe that Jesus truly has come to defeat sin in my life? That Jesus has come to defeat death? That Jesus has come to defeat the devil. Or are we like the disciples? We're just full of spiritual deafness. We have a faithlessness. The hard-heartedness of our own hearts don't want to hear or accept anything that isn't just about victory and success and happiness and comfort. says the truth was concealed from them. This was both because of a human and divine factor. Jesus spoke the truth to them on many occasions, but they didn't have ears to hear, nor did they want to hear. They wanted Jesus to win their way rather than submitting themselves to Jesus' way. See, friends, the bottom line is this. They're missing the importance of the cross. Friends, understand this, that the cross is the central key component of Christianity. 
What makes Christianity different than everything else is that Jesus came to die for sinners such as us. He paid it all. Therefore, the church must never take their eyes off the cross. The cross must be the fixture of our faith. What Jesus has accomplished for us. So I ask you, how central is the cross of Christ in your belief system? How central is the cross, the place of suffering and even death of Jesus Christ in your faith? Church, it needs to be essential. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved by it, the cross is the power of God. If that weren't enough, hear Peter's own words. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he says, He himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He goes on to say, for by his wounds we've been healed. Notice the centrality of the cross in the teaching of the apostles. We can't be Christians if we don't believe in the centrality of the cross. We don't have gospel faith if we don't believe in the centrality of the cross, which means we must come humbly which means we must admit our need of the cross. That's where the second error rises amongst the disciples. It wasn't just lack of faith. It was an error of pride. Look at verse 46 through 48. We're told that not long after the error of faithlessness, Luke goes on to say an argument arose amongst the disciples, and the argument was centered around this, which of them was the greatest? It makes you want to puke, doesn't it? It does me. Because I see sometimes myself, just like sometimes you see yourself in that, where we begin to think too much of ourselves and we miss Christ. Let me give a little context. Let's get this straight. Uh, after seeing Jesus do what they couldn't do, after hearing Jesus explain what they couldn't understand, the disciples are going to spend their time arguing about which of them is the greatest. Doesn't that just sound repulsive? Broken? Sinful? Church, how quickly we forget our own weaknesses. How quickly we assume that we have the strength and the ability to do things we can't. Oftentimes, my wife will say, you need to call someone to help you. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. You cost us a lot of money last time. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I'll double down. How prideful we are. How arrogant we are. How sinful we are. And I remind you, we're talking about disciples. We're not talking about the crowds. We're talking about the followers of Jesus here. It doesn't say that Jesus was part of their discussion. It doesn't say that his name ever came up. It says that they were focused on themselves about who was the, who was the greatest. What's so ironic about that is Jesus knew their hearts. 
So Jesus took a child on his lap, and this is what he said in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Notice what Jesus did there. He took a child, one in whom society doesn't think of as important. Children are dependent. They whine. They cry. They hold us back. A society that believes that children are meaningless, that if I'm going to pursue a career, I need to get children out of the way. We miss the point of how precious children are as they constantly remind us of ourselves, our brokenness, our distractedness, our dependency. See, church, God isn't looking for the proud. He's looking for the humble. And so Jesus takes that child and he puts it on his lap. Because Jesus is really saying a good disciple is one who recognizes their own dependence on Christ like a child. Jesus does something interesting here. He uses the phrase, in my name. Anyone who receives one of these children in my name. What he's doing there is he's making it very clear the dependence we must have upon Jesus. Our connection must always be to Jesus. Any good work, any good action must be founded in Jesus' name. Not for our own well-being, our own glamour, our own glory, our own greatness, but in Jesus' name. And that's why Jesus ended when he said, for he who is least among you is the greatest. Because they understand their strength is only in Jesus isn't that why children look up to their fathers and mothers so much? Because they're so dependent upon mom and dad, they look to them for everything. And that's exactly how we should look to Jesus. The least is the most dependent, the most humble. Friends, understand this. God's economy is this, that the least is the greatest because they depend the most. That's the point of the gospel. This is why Jesus would later say, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because they're rich, they're being punished. It's because they have a dependency upon themselves rather than Jesus. See, who they should have been spending their time celebrating shouldn't have been themselves, but Christ. Christ. If they truly understood how dependent they were, they should have been celebrating Jesus, and so should we. So church, I ask you, how dependent upon Christ are you? Do you find yourself trusting yourself or others more than you trust Jesus? Foolishly, we do. Because if we truly depended upon Jesus, the first thing we would do would be to pray. Before any action, any word, any movement, we would pray. Friends, dependence upon Christ is key for a disciple. And finally, I come to the very last point, the error of a mistaken enemy. You find it in verses 49 through 56. And this is the time when John begins to speak up with self-confidence, kind of tied to the idea of being the greatest, maybe. 
But John speaks out here. Listen to what he says to kind of jockey for position. He says, Master, we, he's smart enough to bring the other disciples in, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. You notice that? John made it about himself. John made it about the disciples. But listen to Jesus' retort. Jesus said, don't stop him. For the one who is against, for the one who is not against you is for you. See, John was thinking he was doing something good, but he got reproved. How often that was the situation in my life. How often that is truly the honest situation in most of our lives. John's error is the error many of us mistake, we take, which is the error of a mistaken enemy. John thought because someone wasn't in their tribe, he must be their enemy. John thought because someone wasn't of their particular group, he must not be on their team. John missed the most important aspect when he was describing this to Jesus. He, he missed the point that this individual was casting out demons in Jesus' name. How often do we miss that? Dr. Phil Riken says we miss it far too much because we exert way too much energy fighting the wrong enemy. That's why in verse 50, Jesus said, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Church, if you'll just bear with me for a moment, I want to tell you about a little book called Mere Christianity. A book God used a number of years ago in my life to remind me about the importance and the bigness of the kingdom of God. In that little book written by C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis refers to doorways and hallways. He talks about the analogy of a house as he explains that in a house there are many hallways and there are many doorways. He explains that the doors are the places of how particular churches and denominations function. And that necessity is that they meet together in that room because otherwise it would be chaos. That they meet and they gather there with certain order and certain structure for the benefit of the whole people that come to gather in that room. But he warns, don't ever assume that that doorway is the only doorway. Meaning, the only group of true followers of Christ. He talks about the importance of being out in the hallway and gathering in the hallway because oftentimes as we gather in the hallway, we rub elbows with those who look at things a little different, which helps sharpen us and strengthen us. It gives us opportunities to serve along brothers and sisters in Christ as we serve the greater kingdom of God. But Lewis says something very important about our time in the hallway and our time in the doorway. He says this, when you reach your own room, be kind to those who have chosen the different door. And to those who are still in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And even if they are your enemies, then you are under orders to pray for them. 
That is one of the most common misunderstood rules of the whole house. Friends, I go back to the house. We're not talking about different religions. We're talking about the household of God. And in the household of God, there are many doors and there are many rooms. There are many denominations. There are many churches. and They all function slightly different. But we need to understand we have a responsibility to pray with and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to rub elbows and serve alongside. But we also have a responsibility when we enter the doorway to recognize that we need to serve and work together here for the kingdom of God. As I look at this message and I think of how quickly we can mistake the enemy, how true that is of ourselves, how quickly we can become vile to other brothers and sisters because they don't see things the way we see things. And how quickly we can tear one another down rather than build one another up. How important it is that we understand who our enemy really is. It's not fellow believers. It's sin. It's death. And it's the devil. And the good news is this. Jesus came to deal with those enemies. He's already won the war. The book of Exodus, the people of Israel were told this. Basically be still and let God fight for you. Quit declaring war on your brothers and sisters and pray for one another. Let Jesus deal with the enemies. So church, I ask you, who have you mistaken for an enemy that really is a brother or sister in Christ? Who do you need to go to and repent and ask for forgiveness? How does Jesus' reproof of John reprove you? Because if we're honest, we all have fallen into the error of mistaken enemies. Every disciple needs to remember that they're not the one and only. We belong to the family of God. Church, as we've seen, the disciples made a comedy of errors. A comedy of errors which really wasn't so funny. And if we're honest with ourselves, we too make those same errors. When we fall into the error of faithlessness, we fall into the error of pride, and we fall into the error of making enemies who are really not our enemies, but brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the good news. The gospel has taken care of all that. Jesus has came and paid for every one of those errors. And if he can use those broken disciples, he surely can use you in this church. He has gifted us faith. He has given us his humanity, his humility for our strength. And he has not mistaken our enemies, but defeated the real ones of sin, death, and the devil. Friends, cling to the good news of Jesus and the victory he provides. May we hold him and cherish him as his true beloved disciples. Let's pray.
Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from this text, God, I pray that we would see our own comedy of errors. Rather than thinking that this message was for someone else, may we see that it was for us. May we see the areas, Lord, where we lack faith and entrusting your word, entrusting the finished work of Jesus, entrusting the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, forgive us for our faithlessness. Lord, also forgive us for our pride where we think too much of ourselves and we don't cling enough to Jesus. May Jesus be big and may we be small. And God, please forgive us of calling your children, those whom you have bought when purchased with your own blood, our enemy. God, may we take it seriously that we are living together in the household of God and seek to glorify your name in the way in which we love and pray and encourage one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.